Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back everybody to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And tonight we are picking up with the step on obedience. And we are starting on page 76 with paragraph 27 at the bottom of the page about a steward. And the focus again is on obedience and uh, as a means of testing the resolve of individuals, but also of purifying their, their minds and their hearts in terms of their, not only their commitment to Christ, but also to the monastic life. We are going to be looking at some of the particular fruits of, of obedience, uh, the relationship between uh, an elder and one that he's directing, and, um, and then some other details uh, of obedience. A lot of stories, again, I think that will be very helpful, helpful to illustrate for us some of the uh, particular aspects of, of obedience as it was seen by the fathers. So again, paragraph 27. God sent that just savior of spiritual sheep under God, another exactly like himself, to be a steward of the monastery. For he was chaste and temperate as no one else, and meek as very few are. Once the great elder, for the edification of others, pretended to get angry with him in church and ordered him to be sent out before the time. Knowing that he was innocent of what the pastor accused him of, when we were alone, I began to plead the cause of the steward because before, uh, I'm sorry, before the great man. But the wise director said, I too know, Father, that he is not guilty, but just as it would be a pity and wrong to snatch bread from the mouth of a star starving child, so too the director of souls does harm both to himself and to the ascetic if he does not give him frequent opportunities to obtain crowns such as the spirit considers he merits at every hour by bearing insults, dishonor, contempt, or mockery. For three very serious wrongs are done. First, the director himself is deprived of the rewards which he would receive for corrections and punishments. Second, the director acts unjustly by virtue of that one person he could have brought profit to others, but does not do so. And thirdly, the most serious harm is that often the very people who seem to be most hardworking and patient, if left for a time without blame or reproach from the superior as people confirmed in virtue, lose the meekness and patience they previously had. For even land that is good and fruitful and fertile, if left without water of dishonor, can revert to forest and produce the thorns of vanity, cowardice, and audacity. Knowing this, the great apostle sent word to Timothy, be insistent, reprove, rebuke them in season and out of season. So again, challenging perhaps to modern ears to hear that here we have uh, a monk who is meek, is temperate in every way, chaste, and so living a holy life within the monastery. And we are presented here with an aspect of, of obedience that we might not typically think of, especially in regards to something like confession or spiritual direction, uh, the, the idea of being reproved or corrected. And especially in the way that it's presented here, uh, again, to one who's in, innocent of any wrongdoing, 
but uh, is tested in order that that virtue might be perfected. And uh, this is something I think important for us to, to contemplate that even our virtues have to be perfected by the grace of God. So even when a person grows in grace and begins to live a holy life, even that which is good in him or her has to be perfected by God's grace. That what we are called to is the holiness of God, not simply to holiness or obedience or goodness or, or temperance in our own minds or what we would think that would look like. And one such as a superior like this has a kind of responsibility to those in his charge not to be lacking uh, in performing these uh, kinds of, of tests that foster and promote growth within the heart. And so even John is a little unsettled by this because he knows the innocence of, of the steward, but also his, his virtue. Uh, but the, the, the superior is very clear with him that in doing so that he would deprive himself of certain rewards because he would not be fulfilling his own obligation as superior that he's been placed in charge of this community for a particular reason, not just to you know, uh, put together a well-oiled machine you know, to help the, the community function well, not simply to be an administrator, that he is given over to the care of souls. And so has to be attentive to the spiritual growth of each and every man within the monastery, including those who are the most hardworking and the most virtuous, that he can't neglect them. That uh, sometimes superiors have this tendency uh, to know who the, the working horses are, or the working dogs in the community, and they'll gravitate to, to them over and over again because they're so responsible. Uh, but you know, this isn't the only reason that they came to the monastery, to be good workers. They came there to be formed and shaped and conformed uh, to Christ himself and the way that they, they love and give themselves in love and in their humility. Secondly, he says, the director acts unjustly when by virtue of that one person, he could have brought profit to others. So it's through the example here of someone who embraces the mortification and embraces it in such a beautiful way that the rest of the community is edified. So it's not only for the sake of that one individual soul, but the, of the whole community. And so if the superior is never uh, correcting others or reproving them or testing them in any way, then the whole community can become lax over time. That there can become a, a kind of familiarity that grows within the community that then allows people to move away from or lose sight of the purpose for, uh, for which they join the community. And it's, it's not just camaraderie, and, uh, but it's really to be helpmates to each other in terms of the pursuit of holiness, most of all from the superior. And thirdly, the most serious harm is that often the very people who seem to be most hardworking and patient, if left for a time without blame or reproach, then begin to slide backwards, as it were, that, uh, there is no static position within the spiritual life. So even those who seem to be the most virtuous within the community or the hardest working, if they aren't engaged, if they are not being actively formed by the life in the community, but also by the superior, 
then eventually what is going to happen is what's described here. The land that is good and fruitful and fertile, if left without water of dishonor, can revert to a forest and produce the thorns of vanity, cowardice, and audacity. So if the obedience is never tested, then a particular individual might become sort of bold in, in the way that he speaks to others, uh, maybe sort of caught up in himself because he does work so hard. And so feels in some way that he warrants uh, a kind of respect or uh, primacy of position within the community. And that can er very easily begin to develop. And so if the superior neglects him, then all that has been gained through his struggle for virtue can be lost very quickly. Uh, again, you know, this, you know, we hear these things from uh, like Paul's letter to Timothy here, the last line of the paragraph, be insistent, reprove, rebuke them in season and out of season. You probably heard that a hundred times, but uh, I think our vision of that might be very narrow you know, in terms of one who's committing an obvious fault or doing something that is obviously wrong and needs to be corrected, that there isn't this sense of, uh, of purifying and testing the metal, if you will, of, of the men in his charge. Anything so far on this paragraph? Okay, number 28, I disputed the matter with the true director and I reminded him of the infirmity of our race and that the undeserved or perhaps not undeserved punishment may make many break away from the flock. Again, that temple of wisdom said, a soul attached to the shepherd with love and faith for Christ's sake will not leave him even if it were at the price of his blood, and especially if he has received through him the healing of his wounds. For he remembers him who says, neither angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor any other creature can separate us from the love of Christ. But if the soul is not attached, bound, and devoted to the shepherd in this way, then I wonder if such a man is not living in this place in vain, for he is united to the shepherd by hypocritical and false obedience. And truly, this great man is not deceived, but he has directed, led to perfection, and offer to Christ unblemished lambs. So again, this understanding of the bond between the shepherd and his flock is, 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 is brought up and, and shown to be absolutely essential, that the shepherd of a monastery is to imitate Christ. And so to have a deep love for those in his care and to have cultivated that love and affection with each and every member of, of his community so that when the life becomes difficult or correction is given, that the individual isn't tempted to step away from the community because his trust uh, in the shepherd is so great that he, as John tells us, or as the, as the director tells us here, that he would be willing to shed his blood uh, at the request of the shepherd because he trusts him so deeply. Uh, this would be a good thing for many religious superiors uh, to, to read. The, the kind of cult, uh, love that is to be cultivated there and affection. And that would include, you know, pr praying certainly for those in his charge, but 
but being attentive to them on a daily basis, what's going on in their minds and their hearts, what is going on in their work, how they see their, their, their vocation, the temptations or the trials that they might be experiencing within it. And so the superior has to be the one with the greatest, I think, purity of heart and capacity for discernment, you know, not only in terms of seeing what's going on in his own heart, but in the hearts of others in his charge. Carol, do you see any parallels to this outside of the monastery? Well, certainly, you know, I think what first comes to mind would be the family that, uh, you know, that I, I think so often in our world as a whole uh, that we feel that fear is the more powerful means of instruction. You know, uh, my one grandfather was sort of a drill sergeant and one of the things that he would say to his kids would, was, uh, I brought you into this world, I could take you out. <laughs> so, uh, you know, sort of playing, you know, this strong, with the strong hand and, uh, and sort of what we would see in the Marines, you know, this kind of, of, of thing where they're, where, where they're trying to uh, develop soldiers, fighting machines, uh, but within a religious community, while there's a kind of similar discipline that what guides there is love and affection. And, uh, and this is actually the mo more powerful form of motivation and this is true not only, I think, in our relationship with, with others or superior in a religious community, but most of all with God. You know, fear is the beginning of wisdom, but in the end, a perfect love cast out fear. The deeper our love for Christ becomes, the less we fear what takes place in our life, what, what could take place in our life, and trust him so completely that we're able to face each moment and what it brings without any fear or anxiety. And so within the family, I think over the course of raising children, when, even when there is discipline, it is always to be done with this kind of love and affection that, uh, that there is that love seen even in the correct correction itself. And that requires that there be a kind of temperance and meekness within the, the minds and the hearts of the parents. You know, if you remember, meekness is better defined as this capacity to order anger so that it doesn't lash out at others. You know, anger usually arises in the face of uh, something deeply wrong or an injustice. And sometimes if it gets the better of us or we lack that meekness, we will lash out at the other. And so, uh, parents are to foster these virtues within themselves so that when they inevitably have to offer correction, uh, that they would be able to do so with that meekness and gentleness of heart. And even when it has to be firm uh, and where there's a kind of punishment that is given, that there's never a loss of, of the sight or the feeling of that love and affection. They never lose that trust in, in their parents. And so that would be one place, of course. And the other place I think would even be things like classroom. And, uh, you know, I think we've sort of seen within the culture, a whole host of relationships where we could see how parallels to what's being discussed here, as you asked, 
but where, where the culture has broken down of this sense of authority and not only authority, but the relationship between you know, those in authority and those in their care. And so uh, teachers, you know, the, there was this sense that they were to act in the place of parents for that period of time when the children were in school. And, uh, and so not like simply to be babysitters, but to help try to form the individual. So not only passing on information to them, but they were really to help cultivate the children's minds and, and hearts. And I don't think there is that sense of it anymore. I think things have broken down so much that parents would fear to, for that to be the case. And that uh, I'm not sure that many teachers would want that responsibility at this point either. And so I think there are a lot of situations where, you know, this relationship, um, you know, between, you know, the, you know, those who are older, you know, that have a kind of wisdom that comes through experience, the workplace itself would be another example that one would be called to be obedient within that environment to one's superiors. But I think if we have no sense of what is being discussed here, then how that would be manif made manifest in how one takes up one's work. You remember how we talked about the, the monks seeing their day-to-day -day work as their, their obedience. And so I think it would be challenging in our day to sort of cultivate that within the workplace that would people would take up their work and take it up in such a way that they, they love it and they want to see it bear fruit and that they share this common vision you know, of whoever it is that they're working for. And I think with a more corporate mentality that exists now, that people become simply employees. You do your job and that's it. And there is no kind of relationship on, on that level. And uh, so, you know, I think the, the place where it has to begin most of all is within the family. I think this isn't something that's one thrust into all these different circumstances. I think it has to begin very early, both in the formation and of the minds and the hearts of the parents, but also then of their children. That they that can be passed on from generation to generation and then spread into other areas of people's lives. Did you have a follow up to that or? Okay. Anthony. Religious persons with office of shepherd who act unjustly without really caring for souls, but being subject to vices spreads poison to anyone who experienced them, damaging trust for the person to offer and to offer in future. Willingness to obey must then carefully be built up, but the person who whose trust was by the person whose trust was damaged. Right. And I think once that trust is lost it's very hard to restore it and, uh, and sometimes impossible, uh, you know, depending upon, you know, the virtue, I think, think of the person who holds that office. And I, I think it's often why people leave communities too, I think, uh, because they've experienced that kind of environment as not formative, but toxic and something that's been destructive to their spiritual life and their relationship with God. And, um, and so uh, I had another thought there, you know, that something about that 
Oh, the, the, the lack of the virtue there that you talk about and how it can spread through a community that the, you know, if those in charge uh, lack that virtue themselves, then it, it is going to poison the community as a whole. And again, it might be something that takes place over time. There might be all the promise within a particular monastery, but if someone's put in the position where they lack that virtue themselves, then it's going to be destructive of the whole. Mark Cummings. Oh wait, Art had a comment here. Just a comment, this calls to mind a soldier attached to country corps comrades who is prepared to accomplish the mission, even a suicide mission at the price of his blood. Death before dishonor is a common saying. Right. And, you know, I think we see this in the martyrs, the apostles, saints, you know, that there was this willingness, this love of Christ that and also the love of those who uh, were had responsibility for them, that they were willing to put their life on the on the line. Uh, the, the Carmelite nuns, there was a feast recently, the French uh Carmelite nuns and you know that story where they they all go to the guillotine uh guillotine and uh and the one of the sisters you know asked the mother superior permission to die mother and permission is given that there's such this love and affection and obedience right to the last moment you know do I, I have permission to offer my life and sacrifice in this way to god and so it's really quite a beautiful story. Mark. Hi, Father. Um, so this really touched my heart. I feel like um, without getting into detail, like I had a natural meekness to myself. And I think this is probably natural to a lot of people um, when they're young. And society doesn't, doesn't foster that. And... Um, I feel like there's, uh, for those of us who, who miss that, um, who try to foster that in ourselves, um, it's easy to see and understand where it's not being fostered and, and to battle that. But you, it's almost like innocence lost. And I feel like there should be a, a handbook on how to return to meekness in a way. But... Um, and maybe there is. So I guess that's my question. Is there? Yeah. I, I think the, the book is Christ himself, you know, the, the word made flesh. And I think that's, and especially in a time like our own, as you said, we're in so many parts of our culture that that innocence, that meekness of heart can be lost or we can develop, our hearts can harden and become suspicious of others and their motives and motivations in terms of what they ask of us. Uh, I think the only thing that can heal is the divine physician himself, that we not, you know, we keep our eyes focused upon him and how he responded, I think, to the, the insults, the mockery uh, that he experienced, that there, there was such a love and trust in the heavenly father that, and such a love for others, for us that he was willing to bear it all. And I think it's that, that transformation, <clears throat> excuse me, that transformation over time of our own hearts, uh, that the more that they are purified, it alters our view of the world and others. 
in terms of our capacity to love them, even in the face of insult and injury. And so the, the path has been set out for us, certainly by Christ in the most powerful way, but I think in, in the fathers as well as living icons, if you will, uh, of the gospel, that in these teachings, they, they show us this path towards purity of heart. And it's in and through purity of heart then that we regain that capacity to see things as Christ sees them or would have us see them. And so are able to engage the realities in our life and in the world without becoming jaded or having our hearts become hardened because of you know, not being tr treated well. Because it, I think it is something that would be very easy for us to become embittered by the experiences that we go through and to lose trust uh, in others and lose sight of uh, the image uh, of God that they bear, image and likeness of God that they bear within them. And so our experiences can blind us to that, that we begin to develop a distrust and, and kind of hatred for others, you know, that it feels safer perhaps to live in isolation. Yeah. I think even the pandemic revealed a lot. I mean, I, I, I think we've seen the, the, the fruit of that, if you will, and the some of the negative fruit, uh, fruits of it, you know, the isolation that people experience, the disconnect with others, the disconnect even with the church, the sacraments, uh, and that, you know, forced everybody into this isolation. But even when the isolation was over, you get the sense that a lot of people don't want to leave that isolation, that not, not a whole lot of people are in a rush to get back and work in the office. The idea of, you know, well, okay, I'll do hybrid if I have to, but my, if I had my druthers, I'd, you know, sit at my computer at home and be around my family. Uh, because in some sense, that distance that has been placed between ourselves and others, we, we can grow comfortable with that and even prefer it because the world seems to be a frightening place. And every single day, the more you watch the news, it seems more frightening. And, uh, and so our capacity, I think, to, to step towards the other and engage them and even to say hello, you know, has been you know, some compromised in, in so many different ways. And so regaining, you know, th this meekness of heart, you know, uh, forming and shaping our heart in, in this way is, is something that really uh, puts before us the labor that we have to engage in in the years to come, the labor, the work on ourselves, the personal work that is to be done. Okay. All right, Ren. This teaching is initially very difficult to handle. Uh, that is the idea of someone who is good and fruitful being dishonored for the sake of virtue and ultimately for the sake of Christ. However, I believe this is similar to what you often say about asceticism, how it is accepted in every area of life but the spiritual. Purification by dishonor, humbling is something we accept when it comes to sports, the military, education, elite level performance, fine arts, etc. And in these areas, we accept that the dishonor shown, the aspirant, is given in order to refine, test, and perfect their dedication and love. 
The exact same thing is happening here, as Climacus says, a soul attached to the shepherd with love and faith for Christ's sake. In the end, that is the only goal of the monk, union with Christ, right? So there is, asceticism is a human reality, but there is a distinctive Christian asceticism that shapes and forms the heart, that there is an exercise of the faith that forms and shapes the heart and conforms us to Christ and ultimately seeks to bring us into union with Christ. And so on some, on some level, as you said, at first it can be jarring, but as we go through it, it should make sense to us that this would be true within the Christian formation, that our faith will, and on, on all of our virtues have to be, has to be, have to be exercised in order that we, that, you know, our love might be stretched, you know, and begin to take on dimensions that are greater than, you know, the narrowness of our own minds and intellects and uh, begin to be shaped by uh, the, the love of Christ. And, you know, I think we see people struggling with that in the gospel, you know, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, you know, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. You know, it seemed, uh, you know, unrealistic, I imagine, to so many. Too much to ask. Love your enemies. Do not resist one who's evil. I mean, that's incredibly, you know, it's amazing that we could say, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, when we hear the gospel, when we hear that proclaimed, because not to resist one who's evil goes against, you know, our, you know, what would be our basic response you know, to the attack of someone, verbal or otherwise. So we move on. So. Oh, wait, I, we didn't get through, I didn't give much uh, attention to the paragraph itself. So there are just a few things that I want to, to look at here. So, you know, John, himself is unsettled by this and says, you know, isn't there something about our infirmity as human beings that would lead then to break a person? Aren't you going to, to break them or throw them into despair through doing this? And, you know, I think the, the shepherd in, in some sense has to have this trust in the grace of God and the, that God will provide what is needed in order for that virtue to be perfected in the individual. And if he is not there in vain, but has truly come to give his life over to Christ, then it's not going to break him, but be, become something that shapes that virtue in a very distinct kind of way. Okay. All right, paragraph 29. Let us hear and wonder at the wisdom of God found in earthen vessels. When I was in the same monastery, I was amazed at the faith and patience of the novices and how they bore rebukes and insults from the superior with invincible fortitude and sometimes even expulsion and endured this not only from the superior, but even from those far below him. For my spiritual edification, I questioned one of the brothers called Abbasiris, who had lived 15 years in the monastery for I saw that almost all greatly maltreated him. 
and those who served drove him out of the refectory almost every day because the brother was by nature just a little too talkative. And I said to him, Brother Abysiris, why do I see you being driven out of the refectory every day and often going to bed without supper? He replied, believe me, Father, my fathers are testing me to see whether I am really a monk, but they are not doing this in real earnest. I know the great man's aim and theirs, and I bear all this without becoming downcast, and I've done so now for 15 years. For on my entry into the monastery, they themselves told me that those who renounce the world are tested for 30 years. And rightly, Father John, for without trial, gold is not purified. So this, you know, these images that we're presented with, that even the novices uh, show a kind of, of perfection very early on, that the formation that they are given uh, in the in the virtues, but also their trust in the the love and the wisdom of the members of the community and the superior allows them to enter into that life with a clear understanding of what they're they're getting into. Uh, and so, you know, part of it is the community letting them know right from the beginning that you're entering into the monastery for one purpose, and that is to give your life over wholly to Christ and to withhold nothing from yourself and to bear all, all things. And that not to expect this to be uh, an easy place uh, to live. And there's something very powerful about that. I, I think in a generation where maybe we, we lessen the challenge of things so much, then we lessen the value of those things in people's eyes. You know, when, often when people are presented with the things that are most challenging in life, they rise to the occasion, you know, that they, they see the, the beauty of something or they, they see, uh, you know, what the challenge presents to, to them, what it would offer to them or how it would shape them. And so they, they enter into it with a greater zeal. And I think what we find here in the, in the monastic life is this clarity about it not only being a spiritual warfare, that they're being called to enter into a spiritual battle, not only with their own passions, but with the demons, uh, but that even their virtue itself, as I'd mentioned, is going to be tested over the course of time. And that this is something that they should expect, like gold that is purified in fire, they should expect to be tested by life in the community. And they tell him upfront that this at, at times takes up to 30 years. And uh, in reality, I think it probably takes place you know, takes all the way till one's death, uh, that where one is tested in it. And uh, I think that's true probably in married life here, uh, you know, that there's a kind of perfecting and deepening of that love that takes place over the course of time, no matter how long a person has been married, that, uh, that they're called to embrace the grace of that sacrament and enter into that relationship more and more deeply and to love with a greater kindness and tenderness and understanding. And so, again, we, we should, you know, this man who's been tested for 15 years tells John, you know, don't be surprised by this. Again, we sort of get back to Ren's comment about asceticism, that this is the purpose of why we came here, why I came here, 
And I was told upfront, this is what the reality of it is going to be like. And so why should I expect anything more? Uh, but again, you know, I think what is emphasized too is the trust that he has in the wisdom of the superior as well as the rest of the community. Carol. Hebrews 12, 6, and this all speaks to the love and providence of God and the way we are called to respond to suffering. Right. You know, again, there's a distinctive Christian asceticism and its shape, it's, it's cruciform in shape that uh, our, our teacher, our shepherd is Christ himself. And it's from his and through his incarnation on, he shows us what the, the love and, and the humility of the kingdom is about. That empties himself completely, becomes an infant. This is, it's always, I think we perhaps ignore, you know, we focus a lot upon the cross, but we ignore something of the self-emptying simply of the incarnation itself, that the word of God becomes infants, an infant wordless one and absolutely vulnerable to the world around him and dependent upon others, Mary and Joseph. And, uh, you know, throughout the course of his life, you know, vulnerable too. And, uh, and then ultimately emptying himself completely in order to embrace the father's will. And, uh, and so this is what we, again, are, are to, be, to look, be looking at when we think of the ascetical life, you know, that asceticism can become something that is stilted and destructive even if we lose sight of Christ and if we lose sight of its ultimate goal, which is to love and give ourselves in love. And I think this is what Jesus rebukes in the scribes and the Pharisees, that they had this kind of asceticism that they practice this, they, you know, their following of the law, you know, they fasted as, as well. They em embraced all these religious practices, but it did not produce within them uh, a deep faith in order that they could see the redeemer when he came. And it did not create love for neighbor within their hearts as well. Often looking at con with contempt at those who were lawbreakers. And very easily our Christian practice, you know, whether it's our worship or our, you know, day-to-day -day ascetical life can devolve to the point where then it becomes something quite ugly. So it's not only the lack of asceticism, it's a kind of asceticism that is lacking in love that is, a, you know, leads to maybe even a greater distortion for the Christian, because if, if ours is to be distinctive, if, if it is to shape us to become more like Christ, then, you know, just, you know, those in the world embracing discipline, you can pursue their particular, you know, the, the goal of their particular field to be a great musician, athlete, and their, their purse, their character might not come into play, but for the Christian, you know, to place, practice this kind of asceticism without care with what is going on in the heart or seeking purity of heart, then it can become the most ugly and destructive of all things. Okay. All right.
Any other thoughts, comments? Okay. Uh, paragraph 30. The heroic Abysiris lived in the monastery for two years after my coming there and then passed to the Lord. Just before his death, he said to the fathers, I am thankful, thankful to the Lord and to you. For having been tempted by you for my salvation, I have lived for 17 years without temptations from the devils. The just shepherd duly rewarded him and ordered him as a confessor to be buried with the local saints. So it's interesting, you know, um, there's a couple thoughts that immediately flew into my mind. One, one is about the interpretation of the Our Father itself. You know, there's been some dialogue about that in recent times. You know, lead us not into temptation, that God could not lead us into temptation. And I think when we re read the Fathers, though, we, we see the kind of testing that, uh, that we often will experience, not as a form of punishment or to lead us into sin, but to perfect perfect virtue. And this is what, you know, it's an interesting thing that he says here. I've been tempted by all of you for 17 years, but you're tempting me daily kept me from being tempted by the devils. It actually strengthened me. And it so, it so perfected him that the superior buries him with all the, the saints that had come out of that monastery. You know, that he recognized that in his short 17 years there, that he had reached this height of sanctity. But that there's something really beautiful about that, that last little thing. For 17 years, I've lived, you know, with, I've been tempted by you for my salvation so that I could be, go those years without temptation from the devil. Again, you know, I think this is why the latter is a seminal text within Christian, the Christian spiritual tradition and why it's read over and over again in, in Eastern monasteries. And I think it's also the reason why it needs to be read now. There's a beautiful little article written by, and reflection written by Pope Benedict uh, on St. John of the Ladder and why it's important for us to, to read it in our own day. And that it's not you know, something that's archaic or meant for another time, that it speaks to what is most needed in terms of the formation of our own hearts. And so this should really be, you know, something on, you know, every, everybody's bookshelf, every Christian's bookshelf in their home. And uh, I think I mentioned when we first started the group that, uh, was it with, I think it was in Romania, that there was a study done and in the uh, household homes and the books that they had. And one was the Bible and the other was the ladder of divine ascent. And so there are certain, you know, countries and families, you know, there would be, you know, a lot of Eastern Christians, Orthodox there. And so they would have been brought up with a sense of the importance of this work. But uh, I think for those of us who live in the West, you know, I've given re retreats at, uh, for Benedictine monks on the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And most, all of them have heard of St. John Cassian, because Cassian was a Western monk who went and lived with the Eastern monks and then brought that wisdom back 
to the West and the formation of his communities. But not one of them, I think, had read St. John Climacus. The whole host of them had never heard of his name, which for me was surprising given the, the fact that he's so revered within the Christian tradition as a whole that we've lost hold of, of something. But the beautiful thing is that it's so accessible to everyone now that we, we can pick it up and read it and discuss it together. Uh, Babington or Babby writes, I haven't understood the issue with that part of the Lord's prayer since Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he was then tempted, obviously with the Father's permission before beginning his public ministry. That's right. And uh, I think sometimes we can get caught up in discussions like that. And I think seen outside of the context of the, the fullness of the gospel, but also the fullness of the spiritual tradition then it becomes merely a matter of, of word and contemporary connotation of it. And we, we lose sight of the, 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 deeper, the deeper meaning of it, not just the etymology of the word, but really what we see reflected, as you mentioned, in the gospel with Christ himself, but what we're hearing here in the works that we've been reading, whether it's the Evergertinas or the latter divine ascent, that there is a testing that takes place, you know, not to lead us into sin, but to perfect our virtue. And, you know, if that's never, if that is never being exercised, then inevitably there is going, you know, we aren't going to be able to act upon that faith at all. You know, we'll lack courage, we'll lack fidelity and all the other virtues if they have not been strengthened over the course of time. Again, you know, I think we have to see this in terms of our life as a whole and that we don't live this kind of static existence. And certainly not in terms of our relationship with Christ. Okay. So, Abba Macedonius, the arch, no, about Macedonius, the archdeacon, paragraph 31. I should be quite unjust to all enthusiasts for perfection if I were to bury in the tomb of silence the achievements and reward of Macedonius, the first of the deacons there. This man, so devoted to the Lord, just before the feast of Holy Theophany, actually two days before it, once begged the pastor for permission to go to Alexandria for a certain personal need of his, promising to return from the city as soon as possible for the approaching festival and preparation for it. But the devil, the hater of good, hindered the archdeacon, and though released by the abbot, he did not return to the monastery for the holy feast at the time appointed by the superior. On his returning a day late, the pastor deposed him from the diaconate and put him in the rank of the lowest novices. But that good deacon of patience and archdeacon of endurance accepted the father's decision as calmly as if another had been punished and not himself. And when he had spent 40 days in that state, the wise pastor raised him again to his own rank. But scarcely a day had passed before the archdeacon begged the pastor to leave him in his former discipline and dishonor, saying, I committed an unforgivable sin in the city. 
But knowing that Macedonius was telling him an untruth and that he sought punishment for only for the sake of humility, the saint yielded to the good wish of the ascetic. Then what a sight there was, an honored elder with white hair spending his days as a novice and sincerely begging everyone to pray for him. For, said he, I fell into fornication of the fornication of disobedience. But this great Macedonius in secret told me, lowly though I am, why he voluntarily pursued such a humiliating course of life. Never, he assured me, have I felt in myself such relief from every conflict and such sweetness of divine light as now. It is the property of angels, he continued, not to fall. And even as some say, it is quite impossible for them to fall. It is the property of men to fall and to rise again as often as this may happen, but is the property of devils and devils alone not to rise once they have fallen. So, you know, he's prevented from fulfilling his obedience to the superior uh, by some set of circumstances. And the, again, the superior does not miss the opportunity uh, to to correct him and to allow that to perfect his virtue, to test that virtue, to see how patient he really was. And so he strips him of his, his role as a deacon and makes him, you know, sort of begin the novitiate over again. And again, this is one of those stories where I think, you know, probably most every one of us would say, I'm out of here, you know, I'm done. And, but there, again, there's such a trust that he's willing to do this with a, a kind of patience as if he wasn't even really being punished, which is, again, is extraordinary that as, you know, throughout the course of his life, that that patience had been so perfected that he could endure this and, and, and even go beyond endurance, that when the superior releases him from the the punishment and seeks to restore him to his former position he begs to remain there because he discovered a kind of freedom a kind of angelic life by living in this humbled state before all the rest of the members of the community of you know having to beg for this forgiveness then freed him from often the internal conflicts that we experience where we want to hold on to self-esteem or, and you know, the image that we have of ourselves, but also the image that others have of us. And freed from that, then he, he becomes freed from other forms of temptation, other passions that he had so perfect, been so perfected in humility and obedience, then that he could not be pulled out of that state and so he would rather stay within it because it allowed him to live this kind of angelic life where his heart was not moved by insult or rebuke. Now, admittedly, uh, you know, this is a really high level of perfection in the virtue, but I, I think it shows us again something very powerful about the testing of virtue and the stretching of our capacity to love and to pray and to serve and to bear 
forms of humiliation, you know, whether it's from others or simply from life itself, failures or uh, aging and illness, all, all kinds of things, I think, present us with these opportunities where our virtue of patience, of humility and obedience can be tested and perfected, that there's no lack of opportunity for us in our day-to-day -day life, you know, from moment to moment to have our virtues be perfected. Anthony. I just saw a short video of former Mike Tyson telling two young men that the three years he spent in prison were the best of his life because he was given deep peace. One young man challenged him of how this could be when there was time Tyson earned millions for one fight. Tyson replied that God may give us what we ask for to show us we can't handle what we want. And the Tyson in this video was calm and peaceful, unlike his life as a star, really sounding like a Christian. Yes, you know, I saw that same little video and it was surprising, you know, because it sounded strikingly like, uh, I think it was, is it Solzhenitsyn who says that? Thank you, prison. Uh, uh, you know, after being in the gulag, that here Mike Tyson, of all people, you know, uh, would say such a thing that his captivity, you know, he was put in a penitentiary and it just sort of shows us something, you know, that, uh, he was doing this penance for his crimes and locked up. And, you know, certainly the you know, the prison system doesn't look at itself in that way, you know, uh, it would be good if they did, because I think it would be more fruitful. But something hit Tyson in that regard, that there was something about that penance of being thrown into prison that, re you know, sort of re reformed his heart, that there was a reformation that took place there for him. And uh, in the sense of the way that he viewed himself, that he, all that money he realized could not give him peace and never did give him peace. He had so much anger within him, you know, all the way from his youth. And the success and the money probably only fed that. Uh, you know, as we've so often heard in Climacus and the others, that, you know, the one, one passion will feed the other. So avarice and licentiousness, all of these things would also play into that passion of anger, which he had in great measure. And it had been directed, you know, by his former boxing coach in, you know, into the sport itself, because that boxing coach was, I forget his name now, but he was sort of like a father figure to him and helped Tyson to hone that and shape it. It wasn't Don King. Uh, it, Gus Customato or Gustamato, I think is his name. Uh, an elderly man who eventually, but when after he passed away is when Tyson's life began to spiral. Uh, he'd been such a powerful father figure. So it's only, you know, doing this kind of penance that, again, I think brought that back to life, what had been lost there. And I think it's hard for us when we go through certain situations in our life where things seem to fall apart, uh, you know, whether it's in our spiritual life or just our life as a whole, 
to um, imagine the providence of God in it and that God is always working for the, the salvation, the perfection, the purification of those who love and trust him. And so, you know, as our, our life begins to seem to fall apart, we don't see the consolation of he ahead when we're in the midst of the desolation, but consolation always falls on that desolation and something greater emerges. And so the examples that we see here with uh, Macedonia's, you know, the angelic state or your example of Mike Tyson, you know, that there is this uh, state that emerges that one would never have anticipated. And I'm sure he didn't anticipate it going to prison, that coming out, he would come out with greater peace. And even again, John Climacus, I think when he sees all these individuals being tested in this way, even though he's a holy man himself, cannot imagine how this would not break them and actually do the opposite, bear this great fruit. And so the skeptic might say something like about Mike Tyson, say, you know, that prison would, you know, you know, that he's just saying that it's not real and thinking that prison would typically break someone or make them worse rather than uh, actually become something that's freeing. And so, you know, sometimes our life does take on that quality. You know, we feel like it becomes a prison, you know, that we're, we're locked in these circumstances of life. We're locked in our own personality and our own weaknesses and poverty, and we can't seem to escape it. And God will often bring us through all these kinds of things that make us realize, well, we don't have to escape it. You know, our poverty and even our sin isn't an obstruction to our knowing intimacy with him. In fact, it's the acknowledgement of that deep poverty that allows him then to lift us up. And that's where you find the extraordinary thing in like a Solzhenitsyn that, you know, broken down completely, that he emerges out of that free. And sometimes when we are broken down completely by certain circumstances in our life, there's a freedom that emerges out of that, a greater sense, sense of self-identity, but also of our, our sense of uh, our relationship with God, who God is to us becomes clearer as well. Any comments or thoughts on this little section? Okay, there, uh, did we finish that section about Macedonians? Yes, we did. So when we stop there, it's 8.30 and uh, great comments. Once again, challenging uh, section. This, again, we still have a lot uh, a lot to get through here on, on obedience, but every little story seems again to bring forward one, one more facet of it and allows us to see its beauty. All right, so when we close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God.